that's really great. Um, and um, really, really pleased to, to welcome you all to our first session today, um, which is looking at the, the collections and work in galleries, libraries, archives and museum sector. In particular, looking at both university special collections, but also kind of a very special collection in, in, in the heritage sector as well. Um, we have three brilliant speakers and three um, really, really amazing, engaging presentations. And I know it's going to um, spark, spark a lot of debate and we'll have like a real kind of deep dive, I think, into the collection today. Um, so I'll um, start off um, by introducing our first speaker, Catherine Short who is um, the Special Collections Manager at the Montfort University uh, Libraries and Special Collections. Um, is going to talk us through some of the uh, kind of institutional kind of histories and special collections around that. Um, and I'll Great, hand thank over to Catherine. OK, so yes, thank you, Ian. Um, so today I'm going to uh, introduce Montfort University Special Collections and explain why we have um, materials relating to the Olympics, which may not be obvious at first glance, um, overview those collections and explain a little bit about how we use them in our day-to-day. Um, -day, uh, um, I do quite like this um, uh, image of uh, Goofy from Goofy Goes to the Olympics, to the Winter Olympics, uh, which is part of one of our collections. So. So, dear me, special collections, part of De Montfort University, which was founded in 1870 as an art school, uh, was a technical and arts college and then a polytechnic. So became a university in 92. We are a so-called new university. Um, the archive itself was only founded in 2011. And I, as the first professional archivist at the university, have only been in post since 2013. So we are quite a new um, service. Uh, we hold, obviously, archives, rare books and artefacts relating to the history of DMU and to various subject specialisms, um, including photography, art, performance, fashion and sports. We're a small team. Uh, we do a bit of everything, cataloguing, conservation work, teaching, student volunteer programme and in-person and online outreach. And we are open to everyone. Um, so uh, researchers from within and without the university and um, the me members of the public, uh, anyone who's interested, although, of course, at the moment, um, spaces are limited due to obvious reasons. Um, so why do we have these sports collections? Sports archives have become a, a major focus of our collecting policy and of our wider activities which I guess to this audience should not be that much of a surprise, considering that the co-hosts of this event are the International Centre for Sports History and Culture, who are based at DMU. And very much uh, our sports archives come from that uh, a relationship that has grown and developed between the archive and academics from the centre, the Sports History Centre, who have been a major factor in bringing in archives um, to the collection, uh, sports archives of the collection. Um, a large number of these uh, have come from direct um, uh, sort of connections made between the organisations and myself by our academics. Um, I know Martin is in the audience, 
perhaps if Heather is here as well, she'll be nodding because she's one of the worst offenders for uh, <laughs> making connections between <laughs> archivists, uh, archivists and, and um, uh, organisations that have uh, materials hiding in their cupboards um, that need to be taken care of properly. So, but I, I do think though that, that that was the impetus for us to begin to collect sports materials, but there are a couple of other factors that have meant that this collecting area has really taken off for us. Um, one of those is that I think there are relatively few archives who actively and visibly collect sports materials. And the other is that we take in hybrid collections. So let me explain what I mean by both of those. So if we look briefly at the national picture, there is no major national collecting centre for sports archives. There are obviously a number of heritage institutions and individuals who collect the papers of specific sports, while other papers might be held at a local record office or buried, you know, part of a university's collection. These do tend to relate more to major sports, your football or your athletics, rugby, tennis, rather than smaller sports. And what I think of as the sort of peripherals, all the things surrounding the organisations of sports organization of sporting um, events and sports organizations, things like coaching or even journalism and obviously the work of sports historians. So we analyze data on the Sporting Heritage Network website, which um, maps institutions holding sports collections. And obviously we could only analyze what was on there. So this might not be ex exactly accurate, but it shows us that we've become distinctive, not only for the quantity of our sports related collections, but for, the, for their variety and their rarity. So we currently have seven different sports represented, not including material relating to multi-sport events such as the Olympic or Commonwealth Games. And many of the sports that we hold are not widely represented in other repositories. For example, we're the only repository that we know of who holds a collection relating to the Special Olympic Games. The third reason we think for the growth of our sports collections is our willingness to take in artifacts that there is a bit of a division or a binary within the heritage sector between archives which take documents and museums which take objects <laughs> and many institutions many sports institutions just don't recognize that that division that binary to them it's all just their precious old stuff and they want it to be kept together and they want it to be looked after holistically and not divided between different institutions and, and so on so the fact that we are prepared to take in um, artifacts makes us more attractive to organisations who are looking to deposit their sports collections. So moving on to some of the uh, Olympics materials that we hold. The England boxing papers are rich with uh, Olympics items. So the Amateur Boxing Association was founded in 1880 as the governing body of amateur boxing clubs in England and in 2013 changed their name to England Boxing. And they're responsible for the governance, development, promotion and administration of Olympic style boxing and represent England as a member of the International Boxing Association. So the collection includes a large number of administrative records relating to the selection and training of Olympic boxing teams, as well as a large amount of ephemera collected during the games. Um, so pennants, plates, tickets, you know, all sorts of things, mascots, little cuddly teddy bears, it's all there. <laughs> and, and they're great, they're lovely. The Ski Club of Great Britain is our flagship Winter Olympics collection. 
So founded in 1903 as the first British ski club, the Ski Club of Great Britain was established as the leading British organisation for skiing and in effect acted as the sports governing body until 1964, when responsibility for national and international competitive skiing and representation of the sport to statutory body, bodies passed to the National Ski Federation of Great Britain, which is now GB Snowsport. So similar to the um, amateur boxing papers, they hold administrative material relating to holding races, forming teams and sending people to the Winter Olympics, but also ephemera programmes and participant items. So this is a, the card of um, this Canadian skier. Um, but then also uh, this is one of uh, our more interesting items, I suppose. This was, if you can read that inscription, this was essentially looted from the Reichsport Führer's desk in 1945 by uh, Brigadier Pearson here um, and eventually made its way to the ski club. So the papers of the Special Olympics when they were held in Leicester are one of our most complete um, sort of holistic games papers uh, that relate to the organisation of an actual uh, specific games event. Um, so the Special Olympics movement was founded in 1968 by Eunice Kennedy Shriver to encourage people with learning disabilities to take part in sport. And it was recognised by the IOC in 1988. So these papers are those of Steve Humphreys, who was Games Director of Special Olympics Leicester in 2009. And they include everything from the uh, putting the bid together to, to host the Games through to the governance management, fundraising, sponsorship, marketing, press, volunteering, the cultural and education programs, sports events and facilities, ceremonies, publications, you know, evaluation and legacy. And also have a complimentary collection from Dr. Susan Barton of um, her research on the legacy and impact of the games, which led to a, a report about that. One of our recent collections, and it's not quite been processed as a result of that, but I know there's some Olympics material in there, is uh, papers of Simon Inglis, who many of you probably know as a sports writer and journalist, who has a particular interest in stadium architecture. And his papers therefore include materials on Olympic bids, um, particularly British uh, Olympic bids, where um, he presumably was giving advice on stadium design. So lots of different angles uh, within our different uh, Olympics related collections. And I think it's also worth pointing out that because the Olympics are such a huge cultural, social event, as well as a sports event, there are there is likely to be material about them in wider collections. So these are all examples from the university collections. These aren't from specifically sports collections. So for example, uh, this lady is Kendra Lowe, uh, now Kendra Slowinski, who uh, is the most capped England netball uh, player and is now a coach. Um, this is an article about the Olympics from a 1935 student magazine, for example. And this one I really like, and I apologise profusely for the poor quality of the images. We couldn't access the, the good scanner. Um, but these are artwork created by a student of Leicester Polytechnic 
in response to the failed bid to have the 1992 Olympics in Birmingham. <laughs> so very circuitous, but a really interesting kind of overlap between our arts, arts and sports. And, you know, there's a lot there as well as the failed bid and the status of Birmingham, you know, as, as a Midland city and, and all of that sort of things coming together in this set of artworks. So just to wrap up, how do we use these sports materials within the archive? They're obviously fantastic for outreach. Um, you know, the, the Olympics being such a, a high, um, high interest event, something that everyone knows about, something that's instantly recognizable. They're really good for social media. You can guarantee good engagement. Um, so this is a tweet that we did uh, one December when we were doing an archive advent calendar and obviously this is the uh, Torval and Dean there on the front so you're sort of trying to trigger people's memories and you know everyone remembers watching that or everyone of a certain age remembers watching that um, and then of course we use them in teaching so this is one of uh, Dr Heather Dicta's classes uh, attending a photographic uh, history session uh, with uh, Professor Kelly Wilder there at the front so we were using uh, materials from the ski club to, to uh, teach students about um, photography and, and different types of photographic material. And I just wanted to close, uh, hopefully um, you'll all be able to hear this, with this uh, video which my colleague uh, Dr Natty Hayton had created as part of the sort of digital teaching materials that we had to create in the year just gone by. Um, normally we would have a handling session where students could see this in person. Um, so we felt that videos were the next best thing. And it shows how we've used this Olympic item in a session um, that was aimed at historians, uh, history students, as a way of helping them um, to understand the materiality and um, sort of uh, the way that objects are handled and the way that we use our sources. Um, so that uh, concludes my very, brief skip through our sporting and Olympic um, collections. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak on the panel. And obviously, uh, if anyone has any questions outside of the Q&A, please feel free to contact me. I'll do my best to help you. Thank you. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, thank you, Catherine. Um, that was that was great, it was fantastic. It was, it was really lovely to see see the collections there and, and, and also to kind of see how they're being used um, at the university as well um so yeah we'll, we'll we'll have questions once once we've heard from from all our three three speakers um so i'll introduce next um elaine penn who's head of university records and archives at the university of westminster um elaine has also has edited a number of university of westminster history publications um elaine has a phd in information studies from university college london um, and is interested in kind of uh, questions of applying archival studies theory to practice and especially around kind of appraisal um, and is going to be talking to us about the, the university's collections and, and how they Lovely. do Lovely. So, um, Thank you, Ian. Can I just double check you can hear me and see some slides? Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Um, hello and thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me this afternoon. 
Um, I'm going to give you a brief history of the University of Westminster's connections with the Olympics and talk about some of the ways in which our collections related to the Olympics are used in the, in the university's teaching and learning, um, reflecting on legacies perhaps in a different way to some of yesterday's papers. Um, all of the images of documents, photographs and artefacts that you'll see in this presentation are held in the University of Westminster Archive and the university's menswear archive collections. So the university's sporting history dates back to the 1870s and the founding of the Young Men's Christian Institute by businessman and philanthropist Quinton Hogg. Hogg had a keen interest in sport. He played in the Wanderers amateur football team and internationally for Scotland, and he's actually pictured here in the, with the Institute's football team. Hogg had an holistic vision to educate mind, body and spirit. And from the start of its humble beginnings in Covent Garden, the Institute had encouraged members to read by providing a library, to socialise, providing rooms in which to meet and drink tea or coffee, and importantly, to play sport, forming an athletic club comprising football, cricket, rowing and swimming. Members played football on Primrose Hill in London and Hogg rented use of gymnastic and swimming facilities. From 1878, cycling was added to the range of sports when Hogg bought bicycles for members to practice on, and five years later, the Polytechnic Harriers were officially inaugurated as a separate athletics club. In 1881, Hogg purchased 309 Regent Street, site of the former Royal Polytechnic Institution, and took the name the Polytechnic Young Men's Christian Institute, which was gradually shortened over time to simply the Polytechnic or the Poly. Hogg redeveloped the building to house facilities for technical education classes, and within 10 years, his model was to provide the blueprint for the polytechnic movement in the UK. But the move also dramatically improved the sporting facilities of the Institute. Hogg converted the huge exhibition hall of the former Royal Polytechnic Institution into a gymnasium and installed a swimming bath at the rear of the building. By the mid 1890s, there were over 4,000 members of the Polytechnic, in addition to over 7,000 students who attended the 200 weekly classes. Membership was open to men and women aged between 16 and 25. In 1888, Hogg had purchased a boathouse on the Thames at Chiswick for use by the Polytechnic Rowing Club. Following his death in 1903, money was raised by a public appeal for a suitable memorial, with part of the fund being spent on the purchase of a 40-acre permanent sports ground adjacent to the boathouse. The Quinton Hogg Memorial Sports Ground was officially opened on the 19th of May 1906, and became the venue for national and international events, including many AAA championships. In 1938, the ground was extended with what was then a state-of-the-art cinder running track and a new stadium built with a unique cantilever design. Today, the ground continues to provide facilities for students and staff at the university, together with local clubs and teams. The active promotion of sport, combined with a generous provision of facilities at the Polytechnic, made sport accessible to large numbers at a time when many sports were becoming organised for the first time, and local, national and international competitions were being established. As the clubs grew, talented athletes and some notable coaches were attracted to them, and remarkable success followed. As can be seen in these photographs, the winning of trophies was taken seriously by club members and they were proudly displayed in the entrance foyer of 309 Regent Street. The trophy cabinet also took centre stage in the Polytechnic procession as part of the 1922 Lord Mayor's Show. From 1898, an annual prize was awarded to the Beth Athletic Performance by a member of the Polytechnic. The resulting stud trophy challenge, 
sorry, the, the, the resulting Stud Challenge trophy, named after Kiniston Stud, president of the Polytechnic from 1903 and himself a former cricketer, was highly coveted. And the list of champions is recorded on a marble memorial board in 309 Regent Street. The advent of the London Olympics in 1908 provided an opportunity for the Polytechnic to demonstrate its sporting prowess and organisational abilities. Visiting athletes were invited to become honorary members of the Polytechnic and to use the sports and social facilities at Regent Street. The University Archive holds this register signed by all those who took up the offer. Poly members were greatly excited to see various national champions practicing in the Regent Street Gymnasium in the lead up to the games. The new Olympic Stadium constructed at White City in West London was visited by King Edward VII, Queen Alexandra and President Fallier of France on the 26th of May 1908, three weeks before the Games began. The Polytechnic staged the welcome events, which included a parade of athletes and a gymnastic display. The Polytechnic Sports Clubs, under the direction of Robert Mitchell, Director of Education, organised the opening and closing ceremonies of the Games. And the bottom right-hand photograph you can see here shows some of the Polytechnic's women gymnasts rehearsing at Chiswick. Polytechnic Harriers Athletics Club organised both a trial and the Olympic marathon races, planning the route from Windsor Castle Great Park to the White City Stadium. The trial event took place on the 25th of April and was a rather damp affair. Despite the bad weather, out of 66 starters, 49 runners finished. There were strict rules about the competitors' clothing. For example, the runners had to be covered from the shoulder to the knees. Refreshments were supplied by official caterers OXO and included rice pudding, raisins and bananas. The trial event was run by won by Alexander Duncan of the Salford Harriers, with Polly Halliers James Beale coming second. The slide includes pages from several one of several photograph albums in our collection. Originally compiled by an unidentified member of the Harriers, the albums passed through several hands before they were donated to the archive. As you can see, some of these individuals added their own annotations to the album, providing both information and sometimes frustration for archivists trying to establish what is original to the photographs, what has been added later and what is actually factually correct. The Olympic marathon race took place on the final day of the Games on the 24th of July 1908 and drew a capacity crowd at the stadium. The finish was controversial, with the Polytechnic Harriers' own club secretary, Jack Andrew, who was also clerk of the race, taking centre stage in the controversy. The Italian runner Dorando Pietri was the first to enter the stadium, but was badly dehydrated and collapsed just before the finish. Andrew assisted Pietri across the finishing line, resulting in Pietri being disqualified and the second place runner, American Johnny Hayes, being declared the winner. Such was the popular support for Pietri that he was presented with a special silver gilt cup by Queen Alexandra. Pietri later blamed his failure on eating too much steak for breakfast. Andrew defended his actions, stating, I only caught Durando as he was falling on the tape. What I did then, I would do under similar circumstances. 27 Polytechnic members were selected for the British Olympic team, winning 10 medals, including gold in the 1000 kilometre cycling. Although linking with uh, a comment from one of the speakers yesterday, according to the IOC, it's only nine uh, medals, another illustration perhaps of some of the gaps in the historical record. Polytechnic athletes continue to compete at Olympic level. This album includes pictures from the Stockholm Olympics in 1912. As you can see, the photographs are of a very poor quality, clearly taken with a small personal camera by a member of the crowd rather than a professional photographer. 
archive holds similar albums for Antwerp in 1924 and Berlin in 1936. As well as photographs of opening ceremonies and the British teams in training, the albums also include sightseeing photographs of the cities. Sadly, there is nothing to identify the photographers. We don't know if they were a fellow member of the Harriers, an official accompanying the team, or a fam family member of one of the competitors. As well as photographs, the archive also holds copies of the Olympia Zeitung, the official organ of the Olympic Games in Berlin, as Catherine has already shown us today. No new venues were built for the 1948 um, Summer Olympics. Existing sports facilities were used, including the Polytechnic Zone Ground at Chiswick, which hosted the Olympic Hockey Championships. Several Polytechnic Sports Club members officiated at the Games, including Horace Mansberg, who was in charge of the Olympic boxing. Polytechnic Cycling Club member David Ricketts competed in the Games, coming third in the 4,000 metres team pursuit. The University Archive holds Ricketts' collection of memorabilia, including his Olympic bronze medal. The photograph on the slide here is actually one of my favourites. We hold several copies of official photographs of the Olympic event taken by professionals that were published in the papers at the Times. But this photograph was taken by a spectator watching the lap of honour by the British team. And for me, captures a real sense of excitement and jubilation at their success. Some of the finest athletes of the 20th century have competed as members of the university and its predecessors sporting clubs, many for other countries. The university has attracted overseas students ever since its foundation, consistently having a high proportion of foreign students and members. Olympians include George Lind of Russia, Emmanuel McDonald Bailey of Trinidad and Arthur Wint of Jamaica, as well as Harry Edwards, Alan Pascoe and Mary Glenn Haig, one of Britain's most successful fencers. Pascoe and Glenn Haig were both involved in the successful British bid to hold the 2012 London Olympics. Now, few women have been mentioned so far in this history. The University Archive has recently worked with some of its academics and students to try to redress this balance. Earlier this year, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the first Women's Olympiad held in Monte Carlo in 1921. The England team of 21 athletes were drawn from the Regent Street and Woolwich Polytechnics. The Poly's own Mary Lines won six gold medals at the event. Drawing on the concept of the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, a light box of Mary Lines was erected on a previously vacant plinth in the foyer of 309 Regent Street. As part of the project, 10 student poets representing each of the polytechnic athletes at the Olympiad were commissioned to produce their own pieces for the Writing Between the Lines project run by the University Centre for Law, Society and Popular Culture. Creative writing lecturer and poet Dr Hannah Copley also used the Olympiad as inspiration to create new commissioned poetry that interrogates the gaps between the history and representation of women's sport in the 1920s. Copley posted a series of daily poetry challenges based on different events in the Olympiad. For example, event five, the relay, in which she explores the idea of passing the baton and showcases Ethel Scott, the first black woman to represent Great Britain at an international athletics competition in the third annual Women's World Games in 1930. As well as using our Olympic-related records in teaching and learning at the university, we collect Olympic garments as part of the Westminster Menswear Archive. The archive was founded to develop the study of menswear from a technical and functional perspective and actively supports students in our College of Design, Creative and Digital Industries. The collection includes garments from several Olympic Games, including 1992 Barcelona, 2012 London and 2016 Rio. It provided inspiration for alumna Priya Alawalia whose 2018 final year show was made of repurposed tracksuits and sportswear, some of whose designs you can see on the slide here. 
Priya has gone on to collect a, create a collection for Adidas, and this year was announced as the recipient of the British Fashion Council Queen Elizabeth II Award for British Design. So to conclude, Quinton Hogg created something special at the Polytechnic. Although echoing many of the prevailing views of the day, his institute was unique in the breadth and scale of its activities. It is not without reason that the statue erected in his memory, now situated in Portland Place in London, features both a book and a ball, reflecting the multi-dimensional view of education held by Hogg. The Regent Street building and the satellite sporting facilities of the university are powerful reminders of the sporting heritage that the Polytechnic bequeathed to the University of Westminster. The Polytechnic privileged the nurturing of talent and self-empowerment that comes with sporting success and allowed democratisation of sport. Its legacy lives on in the University of Westminster student union sporting clubs today and in the new and creative ways our students are drawing on this legacy to support their activities in a whole range of other disciplines beyond sport. Thank you for listening. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, Elaine. It, it, it's really kind of interesting to see how the sort of wider institutional history relates to the kind of archival collection and, and sort of how they um, have developed and 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 emerged, and also just fantastic to see the kind of photographs and images. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think lots of questions around. The <laughs> um, marvelous, marvelous. Well, that brings brings us on to uh, to uh, to our third speaker um, and and final speaker for 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 this moment. Well, for this first session, um, and I'm really really pleased to introduce um, Vicky Hope Walker, who is um, Chief Executive Officer of the National Paralympic. Heritage Trust and also kind of driving force between behind sort of setting up the trust itself. Um, Vicky's worked across heritage, tourism, um, and also kind of worked at several kind of national museums as well. So a long, a long career in kind of heritage and, and, and museums, and, and also has a long-standing interest in, in kind of inclusion and, and diversity and kind of reaching out from collections. And we're really, really pleased to have, have Vicky here. Um, well, thank you for inviting me along today. I'm really kind of delighted to be taking part. And um, I'm just going to be talking to you about the National Paralympic Heritage Trust and really how we have had to, because we're brand new. Well, I say we're brand new. We were set up in 2015, but that's pretty new compared to some of you. Um, and how we've had to establish our kind of systems for documenting the Paralympics. Um, and the issues and the opportunities that has come with that. Um, as I say, we were set up in 2015 as a charity and a company. And our remit was, as written at the bottom of the screen here, we exist to enlighten and inspire future generations by celebrating, cherishing and bringing Paralympic heritage and its stories of human endeavour to life. Um, so that's what we were set up to do. And at that point, there had already been um, interest in the Paralympic collections, which were pretty dispersed. They were with the British Paralympic Association, the National Spinal Injuries Centre, where the Games began. They were with, some were with Ives, they were with Wheel Power, they were with the International Wheelchair and Amputee Sport Federation. Um, some of the, the major and older collections, um, but they hadn't been brought together at that point. So the first thing we did, because we had to fundraise to get a project underway, 
um, was um, prior to applying to the National Lottery Fund for funding, we carried out um, some research and we carried out two scoping reports, um, one in 2005 and one in 2016. Um, Dr. Justine Riley did the one in 2015 and a lady called Jane Speller, an archivist, did the one in 2016. Um, and the reason behind that is we had to get a real idea of what was out there, what might be donated or loaned to us, and work out the cost of cataloging that work as well, and think about um, how we were gonna undertake that work. So it was really important in terms of us um, beginning as an organization and fundraising. The, the next step was kind of, you know, the history. Um, there's, you know, you can't go off and do a degree in the history of Paralympic sport. Um, there's no, any individual out there, sorry, this keeps on wanting to do move by itself. No, um, any individual out there apart, I think the closest comes to it, and I think you're watching in is Dr. Ian Britton. Um, so, you know, it, it's difficult kind of drawing on that expertise, and I'm not an expert at all. Um, I'm beginning to learn quite a lot about the games, and I have been involved in them for, for more years than I've been involved in, in the trust. Um, but yeah, so, th so that was quite a, a, a tricky thing. Um, and also all the people involved in it. It's a fairly recent history. It began with Gutman at the Stoke Mandeville Games. This is one of the original signs. It is the original sign for the Stoke Mandeville Games that we came across in the physiotherapy room about three years ago, um, hidden behind a load of, of things. And we're still getting stuff out of boiler rooms and meeting room cupboards and, and things. It's still eking its way out. Um, so we also had to think about the care and conservation. How were we going to look after it? Um, who was going to do that for us? Or were we going to bring in our own people to do it? Well, we decided to draw on some local expertise in the form of the then county archivist in Buckinghamshire, Laura Cotton, who had already done some work since 2012 on the Paralympics. And um, we decided that we would buy-in through a service level agreement, the care and the cataloging of the collections through the um, Buckinghamshire Archives and Buckinghamshire County Museum Trust. And that's because of, you come across that issue which Catherine raised in her presentation of some people just wanting the paper stuff, others wanting the objects. And, and of course that introduces the issue of a donation that contains both. And how do you deal with that and make sure those collections remain linked um, really important. And of course, the collection range was really broad. Um, it was archives, it was objects, it was living history, it was oral history. So the oral history has been another really, really kind of crucial part of, of what we're collecting as well. And, and more on that a bit later on. Um, so also the systems. So, you know, how, you know, how are you cataloging? Um, and I bring this up under some of the issues. Um, obviously, whatever systems were we were putting in place um, came under the relationship we were having through a service level agreement with Buckinghamshire Archives and Buckinghamshire County Museum. 
Museum Trust um, and had to meet their accreditation or equivalent to accreditation standards. We, at the same time, um, we put in, we put in our application to be a nationally styled museum because we have national in our title. Um, we have to make sure that we comply with and meet all of the correct cataloging systems for that as well. And then you add into that the Oral History Society and the need to make sure that if we're collecting oral histories, we are doing it to the highest standard that we possibly can and meeting all of their, um, their accreditation standards as well. This is actually um, the last of the British Paralympic Association collection being unloaded um, at the County Museum to begin sorting, sorting it out. And we've got a, a kind of fabulous collection from that, including we've got costumes from the very first games all the way through to the most recent games. We've got 70 costumes from the opening ceremony in London, along with all the models and the design books. So we've got some really lovely stuff as well as medals and personal stories. Oh, there we go. Another really important thing for us has been access. Um, access in two ways. So accessioning, how do, when you accession things and the words and the language that you're including, um, and if you do, uh, if you go on and do a search in somebody's database and you use the word disabled, you, you might get it in the context of something not working. Um, so, you know, there was quite a lot of discussion around the language we might use. Um, of course, if there's a document with language which we would see as not politically correct nowadays, we would leave it as it is. But in terms of research and what we put into those um, records, it was quite important. And for that, we actually had brought in an access consultant who's disabled herself. And we consulted with a group of 10 people with different disabilities so that we could think about the language we were using. And secondly, and related to that is the physical access, um, people being able to visit, people being able to access things on our website, um, we have got the highest standards of inclusion and access on our website as a result of that. Um, and then sometimes when you've contracted out your, um, your cataloging to other organizations, actually accessing information really quickly yourself can sometimes be slightly tricky. Um, and as we get volunteers to um, do a lot of the kind of initial work um, and including taking photographs, we also keep everything that we have done on a Google Drive document, because sometimes you just need it in your work. You need it for communications. You need really quick access. You need to deal with it. And um, it was very helpful for us to do that as well. So our current collection. Um, We've had um, actually 300, sorry, 635 donations. We've had, we've got kind of 32 large boxes of stuff we haven't quite dealt with. Got about 10 linear meters of other items as well that still needs dealing with. Um, 2,000 other boxes, average sort of size box. We've gathered about 60 oral histories. It's possibly a little bit more than that. Um, but four years in, we've only catalogued a fifth. 
Um, it's been far greater work than we anticipated. We had some wonderful support from the Wellcome Trust to do some of this work and that money has now gone. Um, and, you know, finding the money and raising the money to do the work is difficult. And we have been very reliant and um, put increasing emphasis on the use of volunteers for aspects of the work, obviously overseen by the archives and the museum. And there's some boxes here of some of the costumes in our collection or the, the athletes outfits from um, the British Paralympic Association. So some of the issues that we've faced, um, I've already mentioned cost. I sometimes think, and I'd be interested to know what other people think. I've done a lot of applications um, for cataloging the collections to some of the traditional trusts that manage that um, and got absolutely nowhere. Um, and we've, we've sort of partly run out, <laughs> need to refresh our energy. But I sometimes feel that some of these trusts are, are you know, sporting collections don't quite fit into their historical way of thinking and operating. I'm not sure, but I, you know, I do find that difficult. And um, I've been, you know, in the past and previous role, roles, I've had a good track history in, in fundraising for that sort of work. So it's it's been interesting for me. Um, the cost of obviously cataloguing things is really expensive. And I've mentioned how we've kind of increasingly using volunteers to help with that. Cataloguing, um, sorry, collecting from recent games. Um, I mean, with our relationship with the British Paralympic Association and Wheelpower as founding partners, that's really helpful. Um, and it's really important for us to keep on that collecting as well. So that, that's, that's a, a key issue for us. I think the division of collections for conservation needs is, again, this goes back to Catherine with the paper and the objects and the division of that. We've established a system where everything goes through archives initially and gets an accession number, which is then shared with the museum so they can interrelate to each other. Um, expertise, again, I mentioned that earlier on, finding the expertise, drawing in people to help with, with that. And um, the varied systems, again, I've sort of mentioned that, you know, making sure that we comply with National Archives and the Oral History Society and the museum accreditation scheme as well that's made it complex for us because if we're training volunteers they end up having to have three different areas of training um, so it's more time consuming it's more costly and we've come up with a system that sort of meets everyone's needs <laughs> and combines everything and then those spreadsheets can kind of take out what isn't required by the differing bodies and we can keep the whole lot on our google drive so slightly um, you know, slightly complex. And um, we've obviously got this great collection, growing collection. So, you know, an issue for us is more display opportunities, but I'll come on to that with the next slide and the opportunities we have. Um, you know, what is so fantastic about sports collections is their ability to really diversify audiences. What is really great about our sports collection is our ability to diversify audiences 
beyond general audiences, but in terms of inclusion and disability. And that's been a huge thing in everything we've done. We've consulted with groups of disability groups, um, individuals. Um, our Heritage Centre picture here um, involved 1,500 people um, and then a core team of 10 um, disability groups in terms of its design. Um, so really great opportunity to do that. A great opportunity for displays. Um, lower down on this slide, you can see that I put Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and um, the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, where who they're going to have a new museum in the Olympic Park. And we have been under discussion for a couple of years now about putting displays across the Olympic Park. Um, that show the story of the Paralympic history and particularly London 2012. Um, and at some point we really need to be collaborating and bring in, bring in the, um, the Olympic displays as well. It'd be wonderful to have a collaboration on that. And the Heritage Lottery Fund have been very supportive about us putting in an application for another five-year project um, in 2023. Um, then, Digital, um, we've been quite digitally savvy because it provides access and access has been very important to us in terms of disability and inclusion. So in lockdown, we remained open. We have 3D displays of our galleries as well as um, all the temporary exhibitions we've done. And we can actually take people around them in live real time as we're doing here now and share with them even the films and things. Um, really important is the research opportunities. We've got Dawn Newbury. Hi, Dawn, I know you're out there. Hi, Sam, I know you're out there as well. Um, Dawn's doing a PhD. She's begun it sort of fairly recently, really, on the history of Paralympics through um, imagery and photographs. And Sam is coming um, sort of nearing the other end of his PhD through Glasgow. Um, on the history of the sports wheelchair, which is really, really exciting piece of work as well. And then Dr. Ian Britton, hi Ian, I know you're out there too, um, has just submitted an application where we would hope if we're successful to undertake 300 oral histories um, over the next few years, which would be really amazing because it would just capture certainly you know, we've got a great long list of early stories and people who are getting older involved in the Paralympic history. So, I mean, you know, just to finish on that is, you know, why do, why do we all do it? Um, we do it because it's a wonderful history. It's an inspiring history. In our case, it's a really unique history and something we should be incredibly proud of um, uh, in this country. Um, but we also do it because we can use our collection to challenge negative perceptions of disability through the Paralympic heritage. Um, and that's a really important thing to do because even despite the success of London 2012, hate crime towards people with disabilities has actually increased. Um, there's numerous reasons behind them. One of them is slightly positive in that people are more confident to actually talk about um, hate crime and report it. But um, that's why we do it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky. That was 
So it's really, really great to see and really kind of inspiring to see how the, 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 the museum and the collections are, are, are developing. Um, and yeah, I, I think that there's one thing kind of yeah, I sort of wrote down as you were talking that I think kind of was kind of across all, all three of the presentations presentation today is that sort of idea of thought as, as a theme that can kind of reach out across interest and, and um, kind of ideas and topics and there's something that can, can really reach a diverse, diverse audience. Um, so I think that's probably something that we will kind of pick up um, in, in, the, um, in, the, in the discussion. Um, I'm just um, checking to see, I think I got so wrapped up in the presentations, I wasn't looking at the chat all the time to see if there are questions coming up. Um, I think at the moment we're, we, we, we've, we've um, just waiting to see some questions. We've got about um, 15 minutes, give and take. Um, I had one sort of fairly, fairly basic one while people are kind of gathering together their thoughts, which was really um, picking up on the discovery thread. Um, that I think came through all three, um, which is like a really, really basic one of like, where can, where can people go to find out more about what's in the collection um, for, for, for each of the three, three that we've heard about, so where, where kind of like the catalogs and the discovery tools. Do you want me to, 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 to say something? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, just... um, well, at the moment, it's quite difficult with ours because the museum has got a new system that they're setting up and um, but that will be available shortly online through the Bucks, Bucks County Museum website um, and access to collections. Um, and then some of the, um, the, the stuff that has been completed and catalogued by the County Archive, Bucks County, Buckinghamshire Archive, is available on their website. Um, but if people are after specific things, we have a really good overview um, actually at the trust of what we've got and we've got copies of things in our google drive so there's different ways of doing it um, and obviously our website is something of a virtual museum in its own right with a lot of things on there great thank you thanks um Catherine, yeah i've to... just dropped a couple of links in the chat oh. which uh, <laughs> seemed the easiest way i think elaine has as well um so cool. you can see my um uh, special collections catalogues which are hosted on Apexio um, and we, there's, a, there's a sports category and then I've also put uh, our general website which has a number of online exhibitions relating to the sports collections uh, if anyone wants to explore those in more detail. Great, great, thank you, thank you. Yes, so that, that's the link to, to our catalogue blog um we do have I, I don't know if we actually have an olympic tag we certainly have we're, we're increasingly using tagging and keywords to, to sort of aid discovery through the collection but certainly if if you search for for olympics um there um i see there's a there's a question in the chat that says it's for me um mm. I, i'm not quite sure if, if it should be directed at me because that wouldn't be something that would come under our collecting remit um we are yeah. very much the history of the university and its predecessors and it sort of just so happens almost by serendipity that our predecessors were involved with the Olympics rather than actively collecting Olympic stuff per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering kind of whether there was kind of photography from from, from the, the, the two walls. Um, it's always kind of collecting things in context, it's quite hard to collect the wall. Um, but, uh, the, um, but no, no, I, I imagine there's 
probably photography from that out there somewhere. I'm trying to imagine where it might be kind of a museum of London. Um, I think possibly um, the speaker yesterday who talked about the sort of complicated nature of collecting things from the London Games uh, for the British Library, he he, he might be, be the person to ask, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. OK, we've got um, also a question from from Verity Pottlesway. Um, which is, uh, I think, I think, again, for everyone, I'll, I'll, I'll just read it out. Um, so here's it. it says really interesting talk. Thank you to all the speakers. Um, a couple of speakers mentioned value and cost during their talks. Actually, it's very it's very here. Do you want to unmute yourself and ask ask the question? I can. I can. Hello. Um, it doesn't really make sense. So I'm glad you've asked that. Thanks, Ian. Uh, and also just to preface <laughs> that I am wearing a 1990s uh, away England kit for very obvious reasons. Um, you know, sporting heritage and all. Um, thank you to everyone. All of those talks were really interesting. Um, a few of you either implicitly or explicitly mentioned value, um, both in terms of the economic costs, but also like the personal opinion value of, of sport and sports history and culture. Um, across uh, higher education institutions in Catherine and Elaine's uh, sort of experience and then perhaps Vicky more broadly um, beyond that across like the heritage sector do you think that sport and culture has got a high value um, and how can we try to increase or promote the value of such sporting collections and research mm. thank you I'm, I'm happy to kick off with that oh, yeah thank you. yeah um, I, you know, I, I, it's a really good question, Verity. Um, I think it's got incredibly high value. Um, people participate, you know, such a huge number of people participate in sport and it's such an important part of our culture um, and our history. So I think the value of it is absolutely huge. Um, and, and obviously you are seeing more sporting collections come out and more research happening. But I still think the value of it to some of the older heritage institutions, I don't think we've quite overcome that. And um, Dr. Justine Raleigh and I've had quite a few conversations about the difficulty in fundraising and whether that relates to them, you know, you know, museums were set up in the 18th century with the kind of idea of the classics in mind. Um, and obviously we've moved on a lot since then, but I still think we're, we're incredibly behind. I think one thing that's really been exciting for us is the amount of universities interested in visiting us um, and really take, you know, the sports heritage courses, the sports history ones. And that's really exciting. And I think that is spelling out the change and our relationship with the university and higher education sector is really, really good, really good. Stronger than it is with the traditional heritage and museum sector in some ways. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to follow up um, for, from our point of view in, in terms of, of value. Um, we use the collections in such a number of different subject teaching. Uh, you know, Elaine gave the example of using it for fashion. We do that as well because GMU has fashion design courses. So we get out, you know, the different um, from, you know, clunky ski boots from, you know, the 1930s through to, you know, modern jackets from, from the different Olympic um, or Commonwealth Games. 
we we use them for photographic studies we use them for social um, and cultural studies as well um, I think speaking more broadly that perhaps sports what makes sports valuable also makes it per be perceived as less valuable so if I explain what I mean it it's valuable because it's so popular and sport is something that almost everyone in the country has a touchstone to a sport that they love, the sport that they follow. You know, granddad went every day to every month, uh, sorry, every week to the game. You know, you support your local team. I think today is a, is a very good example of that in, in the sense that if you go on Twitter today, the whole country seems to be talking about, you know, the, what will happen tonight. So that popular um, aspect of, of sports, uh, sports culture and how people really relate to um, sports events is one of the things that makes them so valuable as uh, both as research subjects and as sort of general history and outreach and heritage subjects because you can really use a sports activity as a sports heritage collection to reach out to the ordinary public because it sparks memories and it has that sort of personal meaning to them like who can remember where you were when you know so and so scored you know the, the winning goal in, in the you know such and such so but that populism may also contribute to the fact that it isn't valued by you know, traditional organisations by or, or has not been so valued by academic organisations in the past because it's dismissed as something that's popular, as something that's not worthy of study, as something that's just, you know, uh, you know not, not as important as, as, as other aspects of, of society and culture. So, which which Vicky sort of touched on herself in her answer too. Does that make sense? <laughs> mm, no, I, I would I would completely concur with that. I mean, the the only thing I won't I won't add to uh, generally because I, I agree with both of the previous comments. The only thing I would say is for those who might not be aware, uh, there's an international council of archives, and they do have a specific section on sports archives the aim of which was absolutely to try and bring together a community, an international community of sporting archive collections. Um, and, and they are quite active. I think they had a conference a couple of years ago. Um, it was a, it's been a fairly new initiative, perhaps also underlying the sort of increase in interest, but, but that might be another sort of, um, sort of um, community that, that'd be worth tapping into as well. well. Great, thank you, thank you. And I know Catherine, you mentioned the, um... The, the Sporting Heritage Network yeah. as well, which sounded like it would be quite kind of relevant in terms of for, for people to be able to kind of join up yes. between Yeah, and I think uh, Vicky has mentioned Justine Riley a number of times, and it's the Sporting Heritage Network is Justine's yeah. baby, if you like, and 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 it is a wonderful resource because any any institution or individual holding sports materials can upload to the the um, network and and show where they are, and it it helps people to sort of map. Um, where they can find sports uh, heritage resources and sort of tag it by sport and so on. So it's very useful for researchers. Um, and they also do a lot of sort of public awareness raising and they support um, uh, community groups and so on in, in sports heritage work. They, they also um, are advocates for sporting heritage and Justine's doing a lot of work kind of talking to the likes of the Arts Council to try and get over some of the issues that, that I raised earlier on. Elaine mentioning the International Council of Archives, there is actually an international um, Olympic Museum group 
as well that operate. I'm not sure whether people are aware of that. You probably are, but um, yes, you know, that's a, another kind of, it's interesting, it's not International Olympic and Paralympic. <laughs> I think I have to work on making that happen. Definitely. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. I think we've got a couple of minutes. So time for sort of one one or two last questions, if anyone has any, if you, you can race to the, to the hand icon or, um, or, or, or can type really quickly. Um, ah, Martin, Martin has a question. Thanks. Um, thanks. Easier yeah, to, yeah. to speak than to type. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, this one goes mainly to Catherine and Elaine, but Vicky, I'm sure you'll probably have some insight as well. Um, Catherine and Elaine, obviously, I know both of your archives, and I know how central what you do is to um, teaching within your institution. And obviously, as a, as a historian, it's fantastic to know that undergraduates students in particular are able to come in and get hands-on experience of archives. They have. Uh, you and your colleagues going in and teaching in their classes. Um, Vicky, this bit, I guess you can come in here as well. Can you maybe give us some examples from, from your experience of how undergraduate history students in particular, not necessarily sports students, but history students, react to the materials? You know, we've got this wonderful resource where they can come in and handle these fantastic documents, ephemera and artefacts. Can you maybe talk us through some of the, the responses you get? happy to, to start. Um, I think uh, I can be a bit stereotypical here and, and say that, um, dare I say, that it helps us to hook the male students. <laughs> um, that does sound terribly, terribly stereotypical. When you've got a bunch of 19-year-olds and they'd be dragged into the archive by their lecturer and you're trying to make them interested, if you can wave a whole load of football-related or sports-related magazines at the boys in the group that I, and I've seen them light up when they see the those things so again it comes back to that that populist um sort of angle of the sports collections that they are fantastic hooks to get the students interested and then once you've got that hook in there <laughs> you can get them interested in all sorts of other things and and you know one thing that that I love as an archivist is is having a student stand in front of you and putting a commemorative medal from the 1908 Olympics in their hand and seeing their reaction to that. I mean, it's amazing to be able to do that. And, and it's the best part of my job. And, um, you know, handling sessions, I think uh, every archivist will tell you is one of the things we've missed the most over the last 18 months. Because, you know, these, these collections are such a brilliant way of sparking that, that love and interest. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I, I would also go further because I think, Martin, you did sort of widen it out beyond sports collections. I mean, I, I, I think just giving students the opportunity to see the original material that perhaps they've, they've seen in a film or seen in a book or um, I, I think really brings the history alive to them. We, 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 did, we do a session for our undergraduates, their first year undergraduates, and they do um, sort of um, studies about um, uh, imperialism um, and, and from all, all different aspects. And we showed them some of our Chinese poster collection that, that we have, and we have Chinese posters going right back pre-Mao and, and through the Mao period and, and then just slightly after. And we, we also, obviously, we, we, we have Chinese nationals in our, in our classes we're very international university and for some of those Chinese nationals the reaction from this particular year I remember who this was their history 
and and they had never handled they they, they couldn't actually believe that they were had I mean they, they first of all couldn't believe they were allowed to actually touch it you know we said yes you you know you can touch it you don't need to wear white gloves or you know anything like that as long as you're careful you, you're fine to touch it and for them it really brought it alive to them that this was this was their history so so yes as, as Catherine says it it is the best bit of the job absolutely just to add very briefly to that at the yeah the handling collections we always get that out um, we normally do a lecture when we have university students visit us um, as well as a tour of the heritage center itself but when you get the handling collection out they're putting on the jackets they're holding the torches um, and the excitement and the photography that goes on is is fantastic um, and you can't get away from from that holding an object, uh, you know, the, the tactileness, the reality of it. Yeah, it, it's great. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. I think I think we have we have run out of time now. So I just wanted to say say again, um, thank you to, to all our speakers, to, to Catherine, Elaine, and Vicky. Um, really, really brilliant session. Thank you.